This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 74 is Jungian analyst and author, Dr. Arlene Landau in Los Angeles, California. Raised in Beverly Hills, she worked in the film and television industry before embarking on a career in psychotherapy. She earned a master's degree in educational psychology from California State University at Northridge and worked as a licensed marriage, family, and child counselor and practiced as a psychotherapist before receiving her diploma in analytical psychology from the C.G. Jung Institute of Los Angeles. She later went on to receive a master's degree and a Ph.D. in mythological studies in depth psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute, where her dissertation was an archetypal analysis of the novels of Thomas Hardy. Dr. Landau was a student of the world-renowned psychiatrist and Jungian analyst, Dr. Edward F. Edinger, for over 10 years. She also studied at the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich for two summers and was an instructor at the Institute in 2003. She has lectured in Berlin, Bucharest, Cape Town, London, and in the United States, and was a longtime board member of the Archive for Research in Archetypal Symbolism. Dr. Landau has been active in the teaching, analysis, and evaluation of candidates in training to become Jungian analysts. She is a member of the C.G. Jung Institute of Los Angeles and the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts, and is the film critic at Psychological Perspectives Journal. She is also newly on the board of the Mercurius Prize Foundation. Her essay, The Impulse to Destroy, in Thomas Hardy's Jude the Obscure, is featured in the book Terror, Violence, and the Impulse to Destroy, Perspectives from Analytical Psychology, edited by Jungian analyst Dr. John Beebe. And her book, Tragic Beauty, The Dark Side of Venus Aphrodite and the Loss and Regeneration of Soul, previously published by Spring Journal Books, was republished last year by Chiron, and it is the subject of our talk today. Please visit the website speakingofyoung.com, where you'll find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, September 30th, 2020, through the magic of Skype. Hi, Dr. Landau. Hello. So your book... Tragic Beauty. It has been republished by Chiron uh, late last year, I think in December. And I was wondering if there were any changes or is it, it's the same book, right? It's the same book. And also, I just wanted to thank you for the lovely introduction. Oh, well, thank you. I know sometimes um, people say, you know, your intros are too long. And I think, no, they need to be longer. I like to you can tell everything about my guest and kind of lay the foundation for who they are, what they've done, and where they're coming from so that we can then jump into the material. So you wrote this book um, about the Venus Aphrodite archetype because you have some experience with it yourself. So I'm going to get out of the way now and let you tell us a little bit about it. Well, um, it's a book um, 
that I absolutely felt compelled that I had to write on this sounds funny before I died and obviously I'm not dead yet um, but I absolutely um, had to to write it and it was the same feeling when I knew I needed to be a Jungian analyst and um, I've had so many experiences of working in the movie business and growing up as I did um, although I didn't know obviously about Aphrodite then or mythology mm-hmm. uh, but I've had so many personal experiences like this and patients carrying that archetype that I felt um, the need to say more, you know, about this subject. So what is the Venus Aphrodite archetype? Let's start there. Okay, well, it's um, someone um, where that's their primary archetype, first of all, Um, which there are others where it's their primary archetype, but she's interested in um, mainly in getting men, um, getting rid of men, or, you know, the possibility of continuous conjunctios, and, you know, extremely interested in um, glamour and beauty. And, you know, that's just how she is. And she's, um, I talk about it in the book, but she's one of these women um, you know, you'll be at the market or wherever, and there, there she is, and she can be old or young, you know, with the high heels and all the, the fake rhinestones and the many extensions and the eyelashes, and mm-hmm. you could just spot her. And she's just completely identified, you know, with beauty. Mm-hmm. So mythologically, who is the mythological Venus Aphrodite? Well, she was, um, you know, the original goddess, Aphrodite, one of the goddesses, and she came from the foam of the sea, from actually the foam from a castrated penis. And if you think of Botticelli's famous picture of Aphrodite, mm-hmm. so, you know, she, she had, you know, her roots in, in mythology, mm-hmm. in Roman and Greek mythology. So you studied mythology at Pacifica and... Jung's psychology is sometimes referred to as archetypal psychology. And I was wondering if you might give us a little bit of a synopsis on what what archetypal psychology is and what the archetypes are. This is a tall task, I know. And (laughs) about how we embody them. Now, that's one thing. Uh, you know, we all have in us certain archetypal patterns, but then it's another thing to be kind of possessed by just one archetype. Well, you know, archetypes are primordial forms in the psyche that we're born with. And we can be born with, you know, whether it's Hestia, who's quite opposite of Aphrodite or Artemis or whomever, you know, what, whatever goddess, that they're just there. Um, and we tend to lift them out. Um, what was the next thing? Well, that we all have in us all of these archetypes, right? Well, some have, you know, um, particularly the African, others too, but um, presumably we have them all, but some people, it seems like they may maybe only have one of them. Right, so sometimes one is maybe taken over by an yeah. archetype, or some use the word possessed by an archetype. And and in your book, you mentioned that 
this one archetype, the Venus Aphrodite archetype, is very um, prevalent in some women. And it's very noticeable because it is about physical beauty. Yes. How, how does this happen, I guess, is what I'm trying to ask. Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, you're born with it. Mm-hmm. And it, it starts to manifest. And just uh, it's easiest for me to give a personal example. I yeah. also read some things, short things from my book. But I remember the first day of junior high, and I was trying to, with some confusion, open open my locker. And this boy comes up to me, immediately wants to help me open my locker. And then I think two people asked me to go steady on the first day of junior high, other than this particular, the locker. Mm-hmm. And it just kept going from there that I just always had, you know, all these boyfriends and different ones. And, you know, until 20 years ago when I finally stuck with Brad Topaski. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you you kind of um, struggled with this. Uh, up, up until then and didn't really know why, didn't know what was going on, because these patterns, these archetypes in us, for the most part, are unconscious, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, I certainly didn't know a thing about it, um, probably until I started the Young Institute. Mm-hmm. But I, I did, um, I was always um, a prolific reader, and the books that I picked out, even at a very young age, had archetypal aspects to them. But I didn't know that. I didn't know the, what archetypes were, or mythology, any of it. But those were the books that I, I um, would go through the Beverly Hills Library. And if I, I still do this. If I find an author I love, I read everything he's written or mm-hmm. she. And so you, you studied psychology before you went into training as an analyst and you studied educational psychology and you worked as a licensed marriage family and child counselor but you weren't working at the archetypal level right actually i was were you okay because i already um had had so much analysis Mm -hmm. so i would actually ask people about their dreams and work as best i could from the archetypal level. And actually, I never worked as a marriage. I mean, I've seen some couples, but as a marriage, you know, and family therapist, that was never my thing. So I already had, you know, you know, maybe hundreds of hours of analysis. Mm-hmm. So before you entered Jungian analysis, you were in a, another kind of therapy. And I myself, I did that too. I studied psychology in college and I was always interested in what was going on with me. And so I was always in some kind of therapy, but it wasn't until I entered Jungian analysis that it really started to make a difference and things really started to shift. And so I've heard you say that it's really an analysis that makes a change and that it takes many years to find, you know, other aspects of one's psyche. And these other forms of therapy, these other types of therapy, don't work at depth. So would you say a little bit about that? Yes. Well, just to um, start, um, other forms of therapy generally, let's, you know, which is unbelievable, don't ask about dreams. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but many of the therapists don't know about dreams. 
So without um, knowing about dreams or even sample therapy or drawing and painting, um, you can't get below the ego level. So you're just really on the superficial level and you can't get beneath it. And so there's really no, you know, no change. And I've had patients who've had um, years, years and years of, you know, some sort of Freudian therapy. Um, not to put down the good things that Freud did. But anyway, um, and I can tell immediately from their stories, but also from their dreams, that the dreams are they're all mixed up, like someone, someone's first day in uh, analysis. So you, you notice that Jungian analysis is very helpful with this particular archetypal, I don't know, do you use the word possession to being possessed by the the Venus Aphrodite archetype? Yeah, I, I could use that word, definitely. Mm-hmm. I have used it. And whenever, whenever one is possessed, you know, you're not in good shape. Yeah. You know, you're you're absolutely, the, the arch, it's like a train that can't be stopped. So now we're not talking about general beauty or beauty beauty in general. We're talking about an over-the-top kind of obsession, would you say, with one's physical beauty and um, attraction? Yeah, I, I would say that. But, um, yeah, mostly over the top. Some people um, can be, you know, much more very, very introverted. And it can be more subtle, but they still have that spark. So it's not problematic unless we're taken over by it. Right. If you can't stop the train. If you can't stop the train. And there is, so people might be wondering, well, you know, what's wrong with beauty? Well, we're talking about, in, in the title of your book, is tragic beauty. Mm-hmm. So all archetypes have a polarity. And so you, in your book, you're looking at the other side mm-hmm. of this. So would you say a little bit about the, the shadow, the other side of beauty? I do a great paragraph uh, that says it really well. One of the most striking images of this worship of beauty and celebrity is seen in the story of Lola Montes, born in Ireland in 1821 as Eliza Rosanna Gilbert. She was a dancer and actress who became famous as a Spanish dancer, courtesan, and mistress of King Ludwig I of Bavaria. He made her Countess of Lansfield, in the 1955 film, Lola Montes, one of the first lines in the film that tells her story is, a femme fatale cannot stay. No matter whom she attracts and seduce, seduces, whether she is completely impoverished or living in a palace, as she did with Ludwig, Ludwig I of Bavaria, she becomes bored and leaves. Her lovers are intellectual kings, very young man, almost anyone. Let's see. I can skip part of this. Okay. At the end of this amazing film, she is reduced to being a circus performer who performs acts from her own famous, notorious life. However, at this stage of life, she is older, very sick, and forced by the ringmaster to attempt life-threatening trapeze acts. 
when he finally sees that she can no longer perform dangerous high-wire stunts. He puts her in a cage next to the wild animals at his circus. In the cage, she sits in her finery, and the ratty public men from age 16 and on are allowed to touch her hand or forehead for a dollar each in a bizarre act of homage. The ringmaster cries out to the crowd that she has been with the kings of Europe, and now you may touch her for a dollar. In this ugly and degrading scenario, she is almost cult-like in the worship she inspires, but her face has a transcendent quality. Even the circus ringmaster played by Peter Ustinov in the film remarks at the end that she gave her body, but she kept her soul. So I think, um, to me, this is one of the most, it's a true story, Mm -hmm. one of the tragic endings. So the woman who embodies Venus Aphrodite is kind of destined to have a tragic end? Where, where, where nothing, um, where, where, you know, even like I'm thinking of Hedy Lamarr again, mm-hmm. uh, because she was actually a scientist as well. So she did have, you know, other aspects, but it, it didn't matter. She still became a recluse at the end, didn't go out of the house and had many facelifts and ended up looking bizarre. So with, with beauty that doesn't last, um, you do have a chapter in the book about aging, uh, Sophia and Aphrodite's soul. Um, you talk about what happens to these women who, when they age, and you can't hang on to this beauty, although in today's culture, there certainly are a lot more uh, ways to try to prolong beauty. And I find it, I'm stunned still at what's out there, uh, and how much the women's look has changed over the years because of the advent of all of these procedures and products. So what is the alternative to say a woman is beautiful and she does embody this archetype, but as as she gets older and the beauty kind of fades, what is... Uh, a healthy way to advance in years? Well, I think, again, analysis. Mm-hmm. Without that, I don't know that one can advance um, in an integrated way. But obviously, the healthy way would be to um, try to develop um, other meanings in life. I mean, the whole thing of Jungian analysis is meaning. So to develop something else in life that gives one meaning other than being looked at or being a head turner. So if it's truly meaningful, um, I'm just thinking of a friend. She's not so much an Aphrodite type, um, but she certainly is interested in her looks. But she really has no meaning in her life. And she's constantly, especially during the pandemic, doing you know these insane projects with her house and you know, all these amazing, like, details and, you know, joining book clubs where she, you know, there's not anyone she knows and, and um, she doesn't even like the book. So she, she doesn't really have any meaning in her life other than keeping, you know, bizarrely busy. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I think, you know, whatever, whatever a true meaningful path would be, but it's hard for um, people who have been a certain way all their life to find that or to even, you know, know about the idea. So finding meaning is one way and... And that's what Jungian analysis is really about, finding meaning. The tragic end, I'm very interested in that. You do write about many different women in the book who did have tragic ends. And there's one here I'm looking for. Um, yes, her name is Jean Seberg. Yes. Yes. You tell her story. Um, she was one of the kind of tragic blondes who her story just briefly was that she was kind of dragged in a gossip column and then her baby died prematurely and eventually she took her own life. And I bring it up because you mentioned she was from Iowa and that a lot of the pretty girls you worked with grew up in small Midwestern towns. And I find that interesting because, and, and then wind up in Hollywood, you know, and and in this huge city of Los Angeles and in the, 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 this huge industry. And I find it interesting because I noticed that the girls who were really popular in high school, I noticed that they as adults aren't and that mm. the ones that were quiet and kind of, I don't know, homely or not popular are the ones that really succeeded later in life. So is that a compensation? You you mentioning that that a lot of the pretty girls you worked with in the film industry were from these small towns. Yeah, they were. Um, and some of them, I remember one in particular, um, who was also blonde, um, that she, you know, not only had her face redone and everything imaginable redone and breasts, but she also had all her teeth pulled out so she could have new perfect ones. Mm -hmm. So I mean, it was just, I don't know what happened to some of these people at all, mm -hmm. but I imagine nothing very good. Mm -hmm. And you talk about Los Angeles and specifically Hollywood, and I've always thought of it as this kind of Babylon <laughs> um, what, yeah, what is it about that town? What is going on there? Let's, let's look at this psychologically. Well, it's the seat of the movie industry. Mm -hmm. And so I don't, I don't know if what I'm saying is so psychological, but, um, well, I so just want to, I'm going to jump in there mostly because it's so held in awe. You know, I live out here in Chicago and I've never lived in California. I've been there many times and People think that it's this glamorous, wonderful place filled with beautiful, rich people. And ooh, you know what I mean? It has this mystique about it. Mm -hmm. And to hear that it's got this huge dark side is something that I don't think a lot of people consider. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the other side of it. Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, Los Angeles, what, there's 10 million people. And um, there's, you know, different cities. Um, so Hollywood itself is just one city. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, many of the film um, studios are not even in Hollywood anymore. And Hollywood itself is very crummy. It's a, a place um, that's, you know, very 
sadly low income people live and itself it's you know it, it's um the mythic name but um you know there's beverly hills where i live pacific palisades brantwood so like on the west side you know is um very fancy and beautiful homes and mm. you go to the market um on the west side and you see some great looking women and then in other aspects, in probably Hollywood, if you went to a supermarket, you, you would see a lot of very poor people and displaced people. So uh, it's just, um, I guess, the, the myth, you know, of Hollywood or, you know, Brad Topaski, my husband. So when he grew up in Iowa, and I think part of him still thinks that um, when he hears about my past or I have a few film club clips that he's found that he still thinks that's pretty fancy. Right. When actually being on the set was very depressing and led me into analysis. Did you find that that was the case for a lot of the people around you, that it was not uh, a pleasant place to be or a pleasant experience? Um, I I don't think I ever heard them complaining about it. Mm, okay. We just, you know, sit there, and in those days we were smoking and... I, I was always up in a corner reading, um, but um, you know, or they hoped they'd be stars, and so I think they, many of them, um, were pretty happy with it. So the dark side of Venus Aphrodite is the problem. I mean, is the it's not the beauty; it's the other side of it. Just you know, identifying with one thing, and also you know, not. Um, being able to stay with one man for Aphrodite, um, you know, so, you know, going again and again and again after the new one and thinking, you know, that this is it, that'll make her happy. And then she, and she drops them. And it's, it's very hard for, um, you know, pure Aphrodite's to have a meaningful career or, you know, or to have meaningful interests. Because they're so, especially the raw ones, they're, mm -hmm. they're so consumed. Um, there's, there's not an inner core, so they're consumed, you know, by, um, you know, the next man. There's no inner locus. So they struggle with relationships. Yes. Or they, I don't even know how much they struggle. They just run to the next one. Because they're not fulfilled because they're... Because they, they can't be. They can't be. Mm-hmm. You have a chapter about Aphrodite's sisters, the classical Aphrodite and her sisters, in which you bring in the other goddesses. Mm -hmm. They are Hera, Hestia, Demeter, Artemis, Athena. And there is a very interesting section you have in your book about Princess Diana, the late Princess of Wales, and I just want to read that. Uh, it's on page 28 and have you comment. You say, if Diana had some Hestia qualities available in her psyche, she might have been at home tending the hearth in some way. And she would not have created so much allure, attraction, and fascination for the paparazzi. Hestia may be lovely, but she's not fascinating. Or if she had some Hera in her bones, she would have just stayed married and been jealous of Camilla, but she also would have defended the proprieties of marriage. So 
Diana is unfortunately one of those tragic blondes who died young. I believe she was 36. And she really embodied Aphrodite, didn't she? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. She, you know, had a number of affairs when she was married to Prince Charles. Mm -hmm. I found that really interesting because here you have this young woman. She's part of the British aristocracy. And I think she became engaged to Prince Charles when she was just 19 years old and she was a virgin. And one would think that she was the quintessential princess, but the marriage fell apart very early and she did have affairs when she was still married and then um, had a very, very tragic end. And I think that it's a really good example of how she didn't embody these other, as you call Aphrodite's sisters, Hestia, Hera, <laughs> and that if she had, things would have ended up different. Yeah, I mean, she could have been a queen or all the good she could have done. And I remember, um, actually, I was in Prague at a Jungian conference when I heard about um, her death. And I was so angry, um, yeah. actually, that um, this woman, you know, was in that trap and, and the good she could have done in the world. Because she didn't know herself and she was just sort of acting it out then. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's all she could do, really, even though she did do some good things such as um uh, being in a program to deactivate bombs um that are in the ground and yeah, different and she did good things, but um the main thing is the pull toward the next man and and her, her ending was, you know, just like Persephone going underground in a tunnel. And it was 40 days and 40 nights after she met, um, I can't think of his name now even. Dodi Al-Fayed. Yeah. You mentioned that 40 days and 40 nights pattern. And I found that really interesting in your book too. And there's another pattern. Would you tell us about those? Yes. Um, the first pattern would be, um, you know, uh, 24 hours. So let's say one is in a fight with their spouse, just as an example, or a friend. And um, it's, you know, not a bad fight, but a fight. And so you can count to the minute almost for the affect to, to, to dissolve in 24 hours. Um, it, it's fascinating. And the next thing is the 70 to 72 hours. So, and that's of course in hospitals and mm -hmm. it's, it's a 72 hour hold. So if it's, um, a worse fight or a worse something or other, you can count it to the almost minute to 72 hours for the complex to dissolve. Mm -hmm. And if it's a really horrible one, it's 40 days and 40 nights, like it could be you know, a job, a new job that really um, is not satisfactory and, um, you know, or a new relationship that it's like the fifth week where it might break up, where it can't hold, or the, what Edinger would call the lesser conjunctio. So like when my patients um, have, let's say, a new job or they're, or they're moving to, you know, a new home or a new boyfriend, um, I'll, I'll ask them to write down in their calendar you know, six weeks, 
and um, to be aware of that time period. And then after the six weeks, um, they're back to stasis usually again. And why why is that? It's um, it's just an, it's an archetypal pattern in the psyche. I may have read put it in the book. I forget. Um, but even like the police department know they know about it, but they don't know it's an archetypal pattern. Mm. It was in the whale for forty days and forty nights, but they know. Um, you know that they they know that time period or the seventy two hour hold. We've mentioned archetypal patterns a few times here, and I'm just reminded of I got a message on one of my social media accounts from someone I don't know. I believe it was a young woman, and she told me that she took an online test to find out what archetype she was, and she was very confused about what the results were. So she asked me, how can this be? And I know nothing about it. I don't subscribe to tests like that. Um, they're, I, I told her they're really purely for entertainment purposes only and to please not give them too much weight and don't take them very seriously. Uh, but I have noticed when I was just looking around and preparing for this episode that there are a lot of books out there about what archetype are you? And I I kind of worried about that a little bit because it reminded me of when I was discussing typology with various analysts on this podcast and not to get locked into what your quote unquote type is because it's dynamic and because we don't just embody one type, we have to a certain degree, all of it within us. And it is problematic when we identify with one and not the other. So would you say a little bit about these, about people wanting to identify with an archetype? Yeah, um, I mean, I don't truthfully know about these books that you're referring to. You know, I, um, that there's you know, many books by analysts about um, typology. But I don't know about the books um, that, you know, to find out what archetype you are. Right. Well, suffice to say, they're not written by Jungian analysts. Or in the popular culture, yes. or which I also don't know much about, about are into Enneagrams. I think that's what it's called. Mm -hmm. It seems to be very popular wow. now. Some mm -hmm. analysts are into that. And, and so, as you said, that th this is not working at depth and it is so it is not really getting below the ego level. So it's not really going to bring any lasting change or transformation. And that reminds me of there is a chapter in your book about alchemy. Mm -hmm. And when, when I had heard you mention that it's really an analysis that makes a change. Um, I, I thought of that. And I'd like to read this paragraph from chat uh, from page 89. You say that it is through taking on what is dark and difficult that mm -hmm. I have developed. You're talking about yourself. The alchemists sweated over their materials and themselves in their laboratories. They tortured, flayed, pounded, scored, cut, burned, and melted. Their attitude was prayerful as they tended their blessed art, the goal of which was nothing less than releasing soul from matter. In the humblest, most underrated realm, the divine soul lies ensnared and awaits its release. 
perhaps intending to this work, alchemists came into contact with what was divine in themselves. So you saying it is through taking on what is dark and difficult that you have yeah. developed. Yes. I mean, just um, going, you know, first of all, analysis is not easy. You know, or people who come in or they'll even say it on their voicemail to me that they just want to be happy. I mean, mm -hmm. those people don't last very long. If we're, you know, happy, actually happy once a week, we're quite lucky. Um, but um, if you go through analysis, it's, it's a very difficult process to, to face the dark aspects of oneself or going through the training program to be a Jungian analyst or even, you know, getting a license to practice therapy. I had to do, you know, 3,000 hours for free in these different clinics. And a lot of people drop out of these pursuits along the way. So becoming an analyst, and then I decided I wanted to get a PhD, so then going to Pacifica, and that was another five years, so mm -hmm. just a lot of hard work. And Pacifica, um, I remember the first weekend I was there, that's because you go once a month for a weekend, that it was so overwhelming to me that it was before everybody carried cell phones that I couldn't remember my phone number to call home. Mm -hmm. So people listening to this might say, well, then, well, I don't want to do that. And why would I do that? So why do it? I think you have to have that drive, you know, to do something, you know, that really means something to you. And for some of us, the alternative is just not, is worse. Mm -hmm. Doing the work on yourself, the hard work on yourself, is difficult, but it beats the alternative. And I think so. I mean, it was the only alternative. So I, I mean, I was blessed by that. So for people, for the listeners who are searching and searching and unfulfilled and want to change, or what I hear a lot of people say is they want you know, the world to change or the people in their lives to change, but they're not getting that it's it's not the spoon that bends, it is only yourself, to quote the Matrix. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, wh what would you say to, to that, to looking at yourself, doing the work on yourself, uh, as far as, it, it, I mean, as, as opposed to waiting, yeah, waiting for the world to change? Yeah, if anything, it's getting worse. But um, I would say, you know, tell me a dream. Mm -hmm. So then you get right there. But, um, you know, if, if someone isn't, in, isn't interested or can't, you know, do the unconscious, they can't. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they can't right now, but... Maybe, maybe later. But, um, you know, some people just, just can't do the work. Or, you know, I'll have certain patients and, you know, maybe they'll stay a year or two, which is not long enough. Um, and they really can't get the um, archetypal ideas. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't mean anything to them if we do a dream or if I tell them a fairy tale. They just don't get it, and that's how it is. So what can they do then? I guess they just do their life. Yeah. So, you know, but it would be on a, you know, on um, not as deep a level. 
although people do depth and you know in other places you know if they're physicists or you know a writer or you know in other ways that um, have meaning to them because i have netflix i saw that there was a show called cuties came up on my screen and it's about little girls in um, i think it's in beauty pageants yeah, yeah. I didn't watch that, but I um, know what you're talking about. Yeah, I didn't watch it either, and I have no plans to, but it made me think of, there was a show on, I think of, of all places, the Learning Channel, called Toddlers and Tiaras, and I had seen a few episodes of that, where these very young girls are put in these beauty pageants, and the the parents are, I mean, outrageous. And now Cuties was, there was a big call for that to be pulled from Netflix because they were sexualizing children. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was wondering where that fit into this whole Aphrodite myth. Well, I, I think it may be uh, compensatory for the mother um, to uh, do that to her little girl. Mm. Um, a, an example of that, uh, my, my daughter, um, she's grown, she's uh, a novelist and a professor at USC and a very fine ballerina. And when she was little, I took her to ballet classes all the time. That's what she wanted to do. And the mothers, um, were, this sounds horrible, were often very large mm -hmm. and um, not particularly attractive. And they would just stay there. And they would then make cookies um, and bring cookies and be sewing the costumes. And um, and I remember, um, not to be inflated, but I would carry almost a library in my car. And I would go in my car and, and I had a big flashlight because it was often at night mm -hmm. and read. And so these, these mothers were, um, you know, I think uh, it was compensatory to their own lives in my personal example. Yeah, so if the mothers had some awareness of themselves and their maybe their unlived life exactly or what's going on in their unconscious then they wouldn't have their children carry it for them. I think so. Yeah, and of course those, you know, um, toddlers with tiaras or whatever it's called, you know, it's so extreme. And I haven't heard much about it lately. It may um you know, they'd be coming out of style. I don't know. So why is it then in our culture that this is such an issue? Or is it just in our, in our culture? I don't know. Are uh, in other countries, are there beauty pageants for little girls? Uh, are there Aphrodite types walking around in the same way that we see here? Yes, um, not maybe not exactly the same way, but a an example that I was thinking about as I knew I was going to do this interview with you, when we were in um, Botswana, and so we went to this, um, you know, very uh, primitive village, for lack of a better word, and you know, people lived in huts, and and then they the women sold their wares, they made. Um, purses. I actually still have one out of plastic bags and they're very pretty, the purses. And there was one girl, I still remember her exactly. So she was maybe 19 
and and everyone was taking pictures of her and she you know stood in a certain way to stick her her hip out and she was the it girl mm-hmm. in Botswana you know in mm. uh, where you know they didn't have TVs or the internet they might now and um, I, I've seen them I've been to many places in the world and I've seen them all over the world so I think the archetype you know is universal and I've seen them especially in Russia so again. This is only problematic if it is being sort of lived out unconsciously and doesn't necessarily have to be tragic uh, if one does the inner work. Or even, you know, does some work, you know, because uh, you can't assume everyone will do inner work, but if some meaningful work. Around self-awareness. Or yeah, yeah, or even like I said, writing a novel or something that turns them on. Besides getting a new pair of shoes and a new boyfriend, bringing meaning into one's life. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's a little piece uh, that Joyce Carol Oates wrote that I would like to read that embodies it pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, about uh, an Aphrodite who um, um, is not beautiful. At first glance, she would think she was beautiful, glamorous, but no, she was neither beautiful nor glamorous, so much as a mockery of feminine beauty, glamour, a cosmetic mass that had been disfigured. Her face was large, round, moon-shaped like my mother's, but it appeared to be shiny as if, as if rubbed with a greasy rag and swollen. Her shoulder-length hair was dyed beet, dyed beet color and it looked frizzy and matted, as if she had just gotten out of bed. Over her ample body, she was wearing something lacy and black and slinky, a nightgown negligee, and over this a man's flannel shirt, carelessly buttoned, so you could see, without wishing to see, a swath of black lace and large, heavy, lard-colored breasts. Like her face, the woman's body appeared swollen, goiterous, Yet she exuded a weird sexual assurance with an elaborately painted crimson mouth, plucked and pencil-thin eyebrows, doll-like features squashed together inside the fatty face. There was a woman, a female, whose attraction for men would be powerful. I thought, like certain of the older and more mature high school girls whom I knew, she seemed to belong to another species of being. Yeah, so that, you know, um, you know, is obviously an Aphrodite type who mm-hmm. isn't, you know, conventionally good looking in any way, yet she you know, had it, and I'm sure had many men. So we haven't talked about men and their <laughs> role in this. Would you say a little bit about that? Let's see, what I'm thinking about a man who was my patient for a while who would go to Oaxaca to um, meet women. And um, actually it was Thailand, I put Oaxaca in the book. But um, And so he met a prostitute, fell madly in love, gave her all sorts of jewels. They went to a fancy hotel. He was $70,000 in debt. And then he went a second time, and she brought him to see her family in the countryside, who probably wasn't really her family. And she appeared to be the prostitute with the heart of gold, and he wanted to marry her. Mm -hmm. 
And he came there the third time and she disappeared. She was gone. Mm-hmm. And he was, he actually called himself the worm. And he just had no masculinity at all. And he was what I would call a pink man, like a pushover. Mm-hmm. And so he would be, you know, drawn to these, um, you know, beautiful sort of manipulative, seductive women. So there's sort of that type, you know, um, and I know this is sort of general. And then there's the Aries type, you know, who, um, you know, are very masculine. I see them walking in like Beverly Hills. So very masculine, maybe military guys and being out. And and then you can see them, you know, with the, the beautiful Aphrodite, you know, trailing behind them. Mm-hmm. So that combination. Yeah. And uh, sports figures. Uh, yeah. Male sports figures seem to yeah i'm sorry to stereotype here but most of them do seem to have aphrodite type girlfriends and wives yeah no they do you know models or ex-models or or even women who embody that look that you're describing Mm -hmm. yeah i guess in in some ways um, our types are stereotypes but you're right. I mean, they, they absolutely, you know, and actors also. This is an attraction that is natural and and archetypal too, right? Yeah, yeah, to them. Well, so what what can you say about the male counterpart or the, the psychology of the man that would be attracted to these types of women? And what is their downfall? What is their... Uh, they're, how is it problematic for the men? Well, if they're with, um, you know, a more raw Aphrodite, let's say, um, she's not, you know, not developed, you know, psychologically. Mm-hmm. Or, and so, um, you know, that's, a, that's uh, an aspect of their anima, their inner woman. So they're probably not very developed either. And, of course, as we know, many of these marriages don't last very long. And the reason for that being? Well, because first of all, the, I, you know, I'm not even talking about the men, but the women have mm-hmm. to get rid of them and go to the next one. They just, they cannot stay. They cannot stay because they're, they, they don't have that, that inner core that you were talking about. Well, or like, yeah, they don't have the inner core, but also, you know, let's say they don't have much Hera, like Hera stays or like Hillary Clinton is a good example. So she's sort of a Hera Athena type. If we use Hillary Clinton as an example, she really doesn't embody Aphrodite really at all. No, she doesn't. But, you know, she obviously cares about how she looks and uh, I'm sure has had surgery and stuff. But um, she's not an Aphrodite type. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't. So I think the point I was trying to make is she doesn't. When you look at Hillary Clinton, you don't see the embodiment of Aphrodite, but that doesn't mean that Aphrodite isn't in there somewhere. She's still there. She just isn't front and center. No, no, she might be like third down the list or something. Mm -hmm. So then what's the goal here is to embody all of them equally? I don't think it's possible. Mm -hmm. That's really ideal, isn't it? It, well, it, it, yes, it would be ideal. Um, I'm just thinking of myself. I mean, just, um, 
to find what in life is meaningful. I'm, a, I'm still an Aphrodite type. Um, and I have, you know, some Athena, I wouldn't have been able to be an analyst. Mm-hmm. Some Hestia, I like, I'm introverted, I like to stay home. Um, I have some Artemis, I'm pretty athletic. But those are much, you know, lower down, you know, in the spectrum. Mm-hmm. But you have balance in your life and your life works. Yeah, it does. I have to say it does. Mm-hmm. It didn't always. Well, is there anything else? There's one more short thing I could read to you. One of my favorites. It's by the novelist, um, famous novelist, Joseph Roth. He's been dead for probably 30 years. Um, here's the quote. But old age was approaching with cruel, hushed steps, and sometimes in crafty disguises. She counted the days slipping past her, and every morning the fine wrinkles, delicate webs that old age had spun at night around her innocent, sleeping eyes. Yet her heart was that of a 16-year-old girl, Blessed with constant youth, it dwelled in the middle of the aging body, a lovely secret in a ruinous castle. Every young man whom Fran von Tusek took in her arms was the guest she had so long been yearning for. So I think that says it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Landau. Oh, you're very welcome. Please visit the website. Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G, dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Amazon Music, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. And it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungian Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device simply by saying, Alexa, play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts or tune in. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. So with special thanks to Chiron Publications, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. <laughs>